Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Baltimore, Maryland edition. I'm here in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, meeting with some friends and uh, associates in the in the business. I was in D.C. yesterday. Very much uh, enjoyed my stroll down memory lane in the District of Columbia. Doesn't have the best politics, obviously, but it is a place that, uh, you know, I, I generally have some fondness for. And now I'm here in Baltimore and enjoying enjoying the sights and getting to get acclimated to this place. Never been here before. First time ever. Uh, first time ever in Baltimore. So let's get into what we're going to talk about today on the show. And we will be taking calls. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Uh, we're going to be jumping into healthcare here in a second. The latest on that. Uh, we'll also talk about the uh, liberation of Raqqa from the Islamic State's grasp. That'll be coming up later on this hour. Also, some more information about the extent of pro-Hillary corruption in the government, both at the DOJ uh, and, well, across the board during the Obama administration. We'll get into that later on. Some very interesting reporting on it. If I have time, maybe some of the uh, New York Times undercover footage courtesy of Project Veritas. I may speak to that for a little bit. I see here there's some breaking news that uh, yet another individual has been caught up in the uh, sexual harassment allegations that are rocking uh, Hollywood uh, that are really tearing, going after some of the the big heavy hitters, not just Harvey Weinstein, there are others too, and the Amazon Studios head has resigned after harassment accusation. Keep in mind that Amazon, Netflix, these are the big studios of the future. So this is a big deal. Uh, we don't think of Amazon as a as a Hollywood uh, pro, as a Hollywood producer or as something that makes products that are in that space, but Amazon has a ton of cash on its balance sheet and a lot of ability to not just put content out there for people to buy but also to create its own content. So that uh, that is just some breaking news I want to share with you. I think I'll skip past the latest iteration of CNN with, oh my gosh, there's a troll, Russian trolls. There's like all these trolls from Russia that are trying to, we're trying to influence the election. I, I don't even know what to say about it at this point. This is an obsession on the left with the, oh, the Facebook ads and trolling and they just will not let it go. Uh, here we are. We're going to be at the at the one year mark pretty soon of the Trump presidency, and we're still going to be hearing about it. Oh, there's this, a Russian oligarch had a friend who also had a cousin who owned a business that bought some stuff tied to the Kremlin and then put Facebook ads out. Uh, it's just w- what is this? Yeah, I mean the Russians engage in propaganda. They've engaged in propaganda for a long time. It's nothing new. 
but it gets people on the left excited because it's it just feeds the idea that the election never really happened and, and will somehow be nullified, which is what this all comes down to. Uh, the Islamic State discussion coming up, I think, will be really interesting, and it'll also work in some of the uh, Kurdish independence uh, analysis that I haven't gotten to yet. But first, let's talk healthcare for a minute, because there were some surprises on the healthcare front today. And oh, and maybe I'll get to uh, the John McCain uh, feud right now in the media with Trump over comments about nationalism. I don't know. I don't know if you really do we want to hear it, but do you want to get into that today? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, first on healthcare, because that does matter. As I say, we, we prioritize here, right? Usually, uh, beginning of the show, most important news of the day, 30,000 foot strategic level, big impact situations and analysis. And then we tend to get a little deeper into the weeds, maybe a little national security. And then third hour, it's just what I think about what's going on in life, maybe some history, some other fun or interesting or compelling stuff. Although today I'll probably do some news in the last hour of the show. But healthcare is one of those topics that when there's something that has occurred, something has changed, it is uh, necessary for us to keep an eye on it because I'm sure you've got a little card in your pocket or you've got one nearby or whatever. You deal with healthcare. We all deal with it personally, as a family, friends, as a business owner, whatever it may be. We're, we're constantly interacting with the healthcare market. It is, you may not care that much about healthcare stories, although I'm sure you do, but healthcare certainly cares about you. Uh, there is no way to avoid it. And Trump has been very clear for a long time now. Whenever I say that, I think of Obama. Let me be clear. I'd like to be clear. Let me be clear. Uh, I just did my own little montage there, but that was a, a favorite verbal uh, pose of the uh, Obama of the Obama rhetorical toolkit. Let me let me be clear. I'm, I'm going to be clear. Uh, so whenever I say that now, that's Obama also for a while made me not want to say the word folks because I felt like he was particularly uh, overused it as a means of of seeming like you know he's in touch with the folks. You know, pe- people use this word folks because it makes them seem folksy, right? It makes them seem more approachable and connected. I don't know, just just a part of the folks, man. I'm just. I'm, but now I use it again because it is a it is a fun catch all, and I I don't think I can get away with saying y'all yet. Although I appreciate that many of my wonderful Team Buck listeners in the South have said, Buck, you are you are cleared. I give you permission to y'all it up. But I still, as a Yankee from New York City, I kind of stumble on my y- y'all. It's just not there yet. It's just not there yet. I'm working on y- y- y'all. Um, I'm getting better at it. But healthcare. All right. So Trump has been clear going back on track here for a moment, about how Obamacare is a disaster. He's been saying it for quite some time. He just said it earlier today. Here's what it was. Play clip two, please. If Obamacare is dead, aren't you trying to keep it alive in some way? Obamacare is virtually dead. At best, you could say it's in its final legs. The premiums are going through the roof. The deductibles are so high that people don't get to use it. Obamacare is a disgrace to our nation, and we are solving the problem of Obamacare. Now, for most of us, because we've been promised for a long time, for most of us, Obamacare being solved means Obamacare being gone. That was my impression, because that's what I was told. Repeal and replace, repeal and replace. 
the Congress has failed now multiple times to get to that point at which repeal and replace happens. And so now we look at, well, what can be done? What is achievable? And with the president telling us all that Obamacare is on its last legs, that it's going to be it's going to be all collapsing and, and getting worse and worse. I think there's a little dissonance. There's some understandable confusion. I, I, I share in the confusion because we're also hearing today the following. This is from The Wall Street Journal. Quote, two senators on Tuesday finalized the basic contours of a bipartisan deal designed to shore up the nation's health insurance markets while giving states more say in how they implement rules set out by the Affordable Care Act. The bill would, among other things, preserve for two years the billions of dollars in payments made to insurers to offset consumers' out-of-pocket costs. President Donald Trump said last week his administration would be ending the payments, a move Democrats and health analysts have feared would lead to rising premiums and scant insure participation on the individual markets. The bill forged by Senators Lamar Alexander of Tennessee and Patty Murray of Washington caps almost three months of talks to forge an agreement that aims to appeal to both parties. So so let's just let's take step take a step back and take stock of what this means. They're saying President Trump's out there saying Obamacare is on the way out. It's it's a a dying statute or it's a dying construct. It's just not going to be sustainable. And that, I think, is certainly true. But then you wonder, all right, well, why aren't we going to try and fix it? Because just sending more money to it, you know, last week, Trump signed this executive order that stops the uh, payments that the federal government was making via the executive branch instead of through legislative appropriations, was going to stop the process of giving that money to the exchanges. But now here, Congress is acting right so so trump's like this is for congress to act on but the congress is acting okay that's a good thing but isn't this the congress then shoring up the failing obamacare bill with taxpayer dollars in a way that if we really think this law should go is going and needs to go why are we gonna shovel money at it isn't that a problem i'm a little bit uh, i have to share with you i'm a little perplexed right now. And Trump spoke about this earlier today as well. Play clip 13, please. Um, Apparently, uh, Lamar Alexander has said he's made a deal with Senator Patty Murray to stabilize Obamacare. Has the White House been involved in those negotiations and will you support that deal? Yes, we have been involved. And this is a short term deal uh, because we think ultimately block grants going to the states is going to be the answer. That's a very uh, good solution. We think it's going to not only save money, but give people much better health care with a very, very much smaller premium spike. And you look at what's gone on with that. Also, much lower deductible so they can use it. Uh, Lamar has been working very, very hard with uh, the Democratic, uh, his colleagues on the other side. And Patty Murray is one of them in particular. And uh, they're coming up and they're fairly close to a short term solution. The solution will be for about a year or two years and it'll get us over this intermediate hump because we have, as you probably know, we have either have the votes or we're very close to having the votes and we will get the votes for having really the potential of having great health care in our country. So they are indeed working, but it is a short term uh, solution so that we don't have this very dangerous little period. Uh, including dangerous period for insurance companies, by the way, uh, 
for a period of one year, two years, we will have a very good solution, but we're going to have a great solution ultimately. I think a better word than solution here would be stopgap. If the belief is that, or if the purpose is that this is just to prevent the exchanges from collapsing in the short term, then that's all this should be, right? And so to say it's a solution, okay, maybe you could say it's solving the immediate problem, but it's not dealing with the overarching issues of Obamacare. This just puts money into it and says, okay, well, we'll do something better going forward. What's that something that's supposed to be better or or starting to make things better? The legislation, this bipartisan legislation that's out there today, uh, would make it easier to get a bare-bones health insurance plan. People call them catastrophic plans. I believe they also call them copper plans because it's like gold, silver, bronze, or copper. Uh, slightly better than you know, rusty tin, uh, rusty tin nail plan or something, right? I mean, they've got copper plan here. Uh, so these plans would be available there are they're available only to people under age 30 and there's some other provisos you've got to show economic hardship so more people be able to get low cost high uh high not high premium sorry that would be the uh, high deductible thank you low cost high deductible plans so that's a little bit better but not that much better this is uh, i i think where we're going to run into some problems here, because if the horizon of healthcare reform is extended too far, then you're assuming that Republicans are going to be in this position forever, which I'm starting to see that this is not a part of the legislative thinking here. Or maybe it is, which would be even more disconcerting. But, okay, we're going to do this for two years. Uh, or well, what, what does the Senate look like in two years? Are we so sure that it's going to stay in Republican hands in two years, especially if the repeal and replace of Obamacare has not happened, if promises have not been kept? This isn't really keeping a promise. Uh, This is, at best, rolling back some of the mandatory benefits under the ACA. But here's the problem. If the overall structure of the Obamacare exchanges and everything else stays in place, and it's just a question of turning the money on and turning the money off from the federal government, and also expanding mandatory benefits under ACA, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, or contracting those benefits based on the political whims of any given moment of any given Congress, then this we're just going to this is going to become like the tax code, right? Goes up a little, down a little, up a little, down a little, doesn't. But overall, it's still a monstrosity. That's the current tax code. Obamacare is going to start to mirror that here. Republicans do, you know, make it a little better, but then Democrats come in and they, you know, we cannot assume that incremental change is good enough or even possible over the long term to achieve the ends of a replacement of Obamacare. Sweeping, bold action, my friends. At some point, the GOP Congress needs to get it together, get their spine stiffened collectively, and take action on Obamacare that will dramatically change the way we buy health insurance, the way it is market-based, the way providers have incentives for better, more efficient, more cost-effective care, and that the dollars follow the patient, the patient makes the decisions. That's what has to happen here. This is this nibbling around the edges. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm just saying it's not good enough yet. I want to salute both Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray 
working hard on a bipartisan solution. We think it's a good solution, and it got broad support when Patty and I talked about it at the caucus uh, at lunch today. First, it stabilizes the system. Two, year uh, two years of cost sharing provides real stability to the system, and we want to make sure that happens. We want to work in the long term to reduce premiums and increase coverage. Our Republican colleagues seem to be in the opposite place on the long term. But I think there's a growing consensus that in the short term we need stability in the markets. So we've achieved stability, stability in the market. If this agreement becomes law, we've also put in some very law. significant anti-sabotage provisions. Oh, those the sabotage been provisions. sabotaging this bill, and the agreement would undo much of that sabotage. No sabotage. No, not allowed. Uh, Chuck Schumer likes this way too much. Uh, way too much for me to think that it's a good idea. <laughs> That's I'm I'm opposed. I know this isn't how you should do your politics in general, but I'm opposed to it because Chuck is for it. But that's a pretty with Chuck Schumer. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good yardstick, I think, that you can use here. And you've also got Senator Patty Murray, which is not exactly a giant. Not going to give me a giant vote of confidence here. Play clip fifteen. Right now, patients and families across our country are looking at the harmful steps that President Trump has taken to sabotage health care in our country. They're looking at their bank accounts, and they're realizing if the president is allowed to continue down the path he is headed on, they are the ones that are going to pay the price. So I'm really glad that Democrats and Republicans agree it's unacceptable and that the uncertainty and dysfunction cannot continue. And I'm very pleased that in the hearings and discussions with over half okay, the you, Senate, you get it, you get it. Chairman and she goes Alexander on to talk about sabotage. Sabotage is clearly the in the center of the talking points right now for the Democrats. He's trying to sabotage it. He's just being the word. He's sabotaging the healthcare marketplaces, says Chuck Schumer. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what they're all supposed to say, because illegal payments, they're not legal payments that have been made because illegal payments have been made by the uh, were made by the Obama administration in order to shore up these failing exchanges. Now, those payments have to forevermore be made, it seems. They're just hiding how problematic the exchanges really are. They're just hiding that this is this is a recipe doomed and I think intentionally doomed to failure, forcing people into exchanges that they don't want to be in, where they're paying mostly for other people's health care or the taxpayer is subsidizing them is not going to make for good exchanges. All right. We got a ton of lines lit here, so I I do want to get to some calls. 844-900-2825. We'll do that. We'll talk about ISIS taking Raqqa. It is a day that uh, of celebration and the fight against jihadism today, my friends. We'll get into that. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I see even more headlines now. They're just popping up all over the place here about uh, sexual harassment allegations, sexual assault allegations. Uh, from different uh, actresses out there without necessarily... Some of them are about Weinstein. Some of them are about other individuals, unnamed as of yet. Reese Witherspoon, this all on the Drudge Report. Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, others that are coming out and saying... I I can't even keep up with it all, saying that they were 
really egregiously sexually uh, harassed. And then you have the, the main header on, on Drudger, Bob Weinstein. So the brother of Harvey Weinstein accused of sexual harassment. This is... This is a day. It is a day of reckoning, or I suppose a, a month of reckoning for Hollywood, for the entertain. You know, when people say Hollywood, really for the entertainment industry. It, it's well beyond just Hollywood. It also, it's a, it's a music industry, the news media industry has a, has a problem with this too. Uh, but it's in the entertainment industry, and I'll, I'll give you some of my thoughts on why I think enter- I think as an industry, it's particularly susceptible to real abuse of power. And it's a culture that has gone uh, hidden. And on the other hand, there's so much virtue signaling, right? It's almost like they they doth uh, they doth doth protest in favor of their progressivism and their uh, feminism at, in Hollywood too much, right? They they make too much of a big deal about how left wing and and progressive and pro feminist and and pro trans and all this stuff they are. And you go, hmm. Now we we look under the surface, and sure enough, there's a tremendous amount of of hypocrisy and and exploitation and and even seemingly criminal behavior here. Uh, all right, I got line. I know, I know, lines, lines. I've got to get to lines. You folks are all kind enough to call in and keep me company here, and everyone else I know listening likes to hear from members of the team. Tim in Mississippi on WBUV. Hey, Tim. Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm all right. Thank Feel you for fine. your call. Listen. A couple of things, and you kind of hit on, on a couple of my points there in the last little bit that you did. But, but this whole this whole deal uh, with the insurance stuff, what what they're trying to do, and, and by the way, Lamar Alexander, Lamar Alexander just barely misses the cut for the swamp dwelling six that are in the Senate: McConnell, McCain, Graham, Corker, Mikowski, and Cochran. Those guys need to be voted out of office, but that's another point. Anyway, Alexander is just as big a swamp dweller as the rest. But but what this thing is trying to do, and, and you hit on it, the payments that were made to the insurance companies were not mandated by law. They weren't even permitted by law. It was done by executive order. Illegal. Uh, the, the, he can make the order, but the payments are funded through the executive branch. What this bill will do is it will take out of Donald Trump's hands the ability to stop making these payments, because essentially what they'll be doing is, is memorializing this in law. Okay, now two things uh, about this whole this whole deal. First of all, the 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 subsidies, the money that is going to the insurance companies. Um, why why should uh, why should taxpayer money be going to insurers, and it winds up in in their pockets a great deal of it. Now. We're also subsidizing the exchanges, you know, to the the individual participants. So we're paying the insurance taxpayer money, and I pay a lot of taxes. I'm sure you do too. Taxpayer money is going into the pockets of the insurance companies, and now it's not enough. They can't make it. They're pulling out of the exchanges because we can't make money. Blah blah blah. Um, the, my premiums, and I have have always paid my own insurance. My premiums went from nine hundred dollars, nine hundred twelve dollars to $2,305 a month in the last eight months here. And you're, so let me guess, your, your care has not gotten substantially better, has it, Tim? It's not like all of a sudden no, no, you're getting the white glove no, service. No, no, it, it has not, not a bit. Um, so, so really the whole insurance thing, I'm paying, and a lot of people are, paying three different pieces. I'm paying for myself at exorbitant rates. I'm paying insurers to do nothing but get rich. And I'm subsidizing people 
that for whatever reason didn't, couldn't, wouldn't have insurance except for this. And for, for the administration to allow this now to be put into law, I think President Trump is going to be making a serious, serious mistake. I, I totally agree with you, Tim. I, I see, Once you turn the money spigot on, it's it's going to be almost impossible to turn it off, right? That's what That's the mistake here. I think Trump made the right call last week by saying, look, we're just not going to make these payments anymore. But by saying we are going to make the, by by blessing this Senate move to be bipartisan and funding the shortfalls in these exchanges, well, is, isn't Trump telling us that this is terrible, it's falling apart and people are going to feel the pain and understand that they that this can't continue? Well, which is it? I, I feel that there's a there's a disconnect here with the strategy right. and it feels very short term yeah. to me. Absolutely. It does to me, too, except, as you know, if they enter into this two-year thing, like you said a minute ago, um, that if, if this happens, to undo it will take another act of Congress. Who knows who's going to control the Congress um, in two years? And, and really, there's I, – I mean, I don't know the specific ideas, but, but it's amazing how, um, I guess, economic system dumb we are in this country. Well, people like free. People think free is still a thing, Tim. People think that someone else paying for their health care at some level or being subsidized by the taxpayer is not them, meaning it does not have any effect on the economy and their own earnings and wages and prospects in the economy. And just one more thing on this, Tim, and then i got to move to the next call, but uh, the ads on this for the Democrats write themselves. I mean, it's it's one thing to say it's unconstitutional for the payments to continue to be made. I, I think that's a, that's a strong argument, right? You can't just have the federal government writing checks that it feels like writing. Okay, once Congress passes this, or assuming Congress passes this and Trump signs it, then the ads be, or, or the the storyline from Democrats becomes they're cutting off funds for your health care. Full stop. And that's why it doesn't go yep. away. All right, Tim Shields, yep. man, great great call. I could talk to you about this all day, but I, I want to thank you very much, sir. Uh, but I want to move to some of our other callers who are patiently waiting here in. The queue, including our friend uh, Greg, who's calling in from Oklahoma, listening on the iHeart app. We know Greg. Greg is a uh, combat veteran. What's up, Greg? Hey, Buck. I just wanted to talk about everybody's uh, favorite soldier who served with honor and distinction. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Except Bergdahl decided to plead guilty to uh, desertion and then misbehavior uh, before the enemy. I I think the, the next step... Uh, is really finding out what his punishment is be is going to be. Unfortunately, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, the death sentence is not on the table in this particular situation. Even though, if you read the codes that he violated, uh, in a time of war, desertion is punishable by death, and so is misbe- misbehavior uh, before the enemy. And I think he's just going to get life in prison and be another cult hero to the left, just like uh, Bradley Manning is. It's unbelievable what they've done with Bradley Manning, by the way, not not to divert from the Bergdahl discussion, but that Harvard (laughs) offered offered him this... Uh, this inter- and look, I, I see on all on a lot of news networks, they're all referring to Bradley Manning as she and Bradley Manning the whistleblower. I'm like, dumping a ton of classified documents on the internet is not whistleblowing. It's just it's betraying your country and it's wildly irresponsible, right? I mean, it's it's amazing the narrative they're going. With. Anyway, with Bergdahl, I mean, look, Greg, you were a guy who was out there literally on on the front lines and and uh, you know facing down those uh, those enemies and dealing with those very real threats to your person day in and day out. So I, I hear from you and others who ha- have worn the uniform and, and served in combat zones uh, across the board very, very much want to see stern, stern punishment, perhaps not the ultimate punishment, but stern punishment for Bergdahl for what for what he did because of the implications 
of having other people having to go find him. Yeah, on top of everything else. On CNN, uh, your former colleague, John uh, Bremen, he wondered aloud if, quote, beyond uh, what he'd already served with captivity with the Taliban would, you know, serve as justice for his desertion and misbehavior before the enemy, as if him being captured wasn't his own fault and that should count towards his sentencing at some point. Like, it was mind-blowing that he actually said this out loud. Let me add one other thing to this, Greg. I mean, if this were, if Bergdahl had not been brought back at the cost of you know tr- trading Taliban senior you know few, uh, senior uh, fighters and and uh, senior organizers, if Bergdahl had not been traded uh, under the Obama administration and it was not part of Obama's you know rose the whole Rose Garden speech and all this stuff, do you think that you'd be hearing from any senior government officials who are who are clearly Democrats about how yeah you know the punishment we don't have to worry about no. It's because this was an Obama decision, and they don't want it to. They don't want it to look as bad, right? And they d- only did this is because the memory hole, the VA scandal that was exploding in front of their face at the time. They hold this rose garden, and then all of a sudden, the VA scandal disappears from the front page, and it's this great celebration of the, you know 48 hours of the Obama administration saying, "Hey, he served with honor and distinction." Until you actually talk to anybody that served with him, and like, no, he completely messed up the entire war. Greg, I, I know you were an Iraq vet before. We're, we have to run to a break here because we got our guests. But let me ask you first and foremost: uh, your thoughts on uh, your your thoughts on Kurdish independence and Kurds in the fight against ISIS? Uh, Buck, I'm grateful that you keep putting this in front of people. I think this is one of the main passions that most veterans that I know have. Uh, the Kurdish people are warriors; they have a warrior culture, and so it really uh, speaks to us. And honestly, if I didn't have a family. I would be over there fighting with the Peshmerga or the PKK at this point. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. Trump's statement yesterday uh, really sent me into a, a heated anger uh, just because, again, we're leaving them behind and not backing them up when they've literally saved Iraq from ISIS in 2014, 15, and 16, and then pushed them out and essentially took rocket today uh, slash last night. So to, to turn our back on these people is infuriating and gets my blood pressure up even right now just talking about it. I hear you. Um, I hear you, man. Well, Greg, uh, as always, great call, my friend. Thank you for your service and uh, Shields High. Team, we are going to run into a quick break here. We're going to talk about ISIS, the fall of Raqqa into the hands of the good guys, finally. Thanks to, in large part, our friends, the Kurds, along with some U.S., some essential U.S. mill help. Uh, We will get into that and also talk a bit about Kurdish independence and then the latest on Hillary's unending circle of corruption. We could have some fun with that. And later on the show, I'll talk to you about judicial, uh, not just activism, but lunacy, courtesy of a judge in Hawaii that is part of the hashtag resistance against Trump. Uh, Maybe some thoughts on the Weinstein, the continuing spiral into the eighth circle of hell that is the Weinstein harassment slash assault uh, story. And, as we're, and it's gone well beyond Weinstein, as I've been saying, too. It's now spreading, and there's more and more that's going to be coming out. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Well, the day we have... Been waiting for for years now is finally upon us. The Islamic State has lost control of Raqqa, its capital, its de facto capital in Syria. Uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, with U.S. backing and air power, have finally 
beaten the jihadist sadists, not just on their home turf, but in the heart of the territory that they once controlled. And now it seems like it is just going to continue uh, to roll them up going forward. We have Hassan Hassan with us. He is the co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. Uh, Hassan, great to have you back. Tell us what's going on with Raqqa right now. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, well, uh, the battle of Raqqa is, is almost over. Uh, there is uh, kind of tw- 20, 10% of the city uh, still under uh, the control of ISIS. Uh, but the American officials and people like commanders on the ground consider the battle uh, done. Uh, it's just a clearing and uh, remain in pockets. Uh, you have also you have to also remember that uh, the same thing happened in Mosul. The battle continued for for a bit of uh, a while, but it's really uh, done, uh, practically speaking. Right. They seized that stadium that was set up by ISIS in the center of Raqqa as something of a last stand position. Right. So that was the final. May, the, the final big stronghold of, of ISIS fighters, that is now in the hands of the Syrian Democratic Forces. There will be some mopping up operations in the city and then continued uh, security and counterinsurgency concerns. But on the Syrian side, and I want to ask you about the Iraqi side in just a moment, Hassan. On the Syrian side, what's still left in ISIS or jihadist-aligned hands in terms of territory? Well, there is a st- there's still a major stronghold uh, in the province of Deir Zor uh, that's larger than uh, uh, Raqqa in terms of territory size-wise. It's uh, it's much bigger than Raqqa, but it's uh, it's predominantly tri- uh, uh, predominantly um, rural areas. As there is in that in that space, there's kind of uh, there's uh, two or three c- small cities or urban centers. Uh, but it, ISIS is on the run uh, in eastern Syria. The, the problem, though, is that uh, this is a time when ISIS, ISIS is changing tactics, so it's actually uh, moving away from kind of face-to-face uh, with uh, U.S.-backed uh, forces. So, so, they're not, they're so not they, they've melted away into the civilian population now, and they're going to engage in insurgency, I assume. Yes, exactly. So insurgency in full force now. They're less uh, emphasizing the uh, territory and the caliphate, and they're moving away into uh, insurgency. They've been talking about this uh, recently in their publications and their public discourse, saying uh, in, 2000, in 2008 we, we did the same thing. We uh, dismantled all our fighting units and turned, and turned everyone into an IED expert. And we trained all, all our fighters to be uh, IED uh, experts. And this is what they're trying to do now. What is the status of the Syrian regime, the, the Assad regime's security and, and territorial gains right now? I mean, how is, how is Assad looking in all this? Well, Assad is looking pretty well. Uh, he, on one hand, he has won the strategic uh, war, uh, so nobody wants to topple Assad anymore. And... Uh, no regional, even the, the opposition's uh, regional backers, they're not interested in bringing down the Assad regime, uh, in, uh, including Turkey. Turkey was one of the uh, kind of the fiercest uh, op- uh, backers of the Syrian opposition. They're now uh, more or less or indirectly actually working with the Assad regime, uh, and their policy is in line with the Russian and the Iranian policy in northern Syria. So they're actually working together. Uh, the Gulf states have no interest in Syria anymore. They're, they're, um, 
We saw today, for example, uh, the former uh, Saudi ambassador to Iraq went with Brett McGurk into Syria to visit uh, the liberated areas that the Americans liberated and helped liberate uh, in eastern Syria. And they're talking about rebuilding uh, Raqqa, for example. So uh, no, uh, Assad is looking pretty, uh, you know, uh, good. He's staying, uh, right? There, there's no there's no serious... I mean, uh, the Assad regime has lived throughout this entire horrific civil war, half a million casualties or so. The Assad regime is going to live to fight another day. Yes, absolutely. Assad is here to say. That's, there's no question about this. Uh, the opposition talk about uh, resistant Assad, but they're really uh, privately, they, they accept the reality. This is uh, Unless something changes, uh, but for now, Assad is, is fine. The question really is uh, what to do with what remains of Syria and what uh, what's the future of Bashar al-Assad in the kind of the far future and the distant future. Um, nobody's talking about his removal now. And militarily, he's also doing well. Uh, now there's a race between the Russians and the Americans in eastern Syria over who uh, takes more, uh, which areas in, uh, in what remains of ISIS territories. All right, Hassan Hassan, co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. Check it out. It's on Amazon. Hassan, always great to have you, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Team, I know a lot of shows, TV, radio, a lot of hosts, a lot of people who work in the uh, information news space will we'll probably uh, skip over any, any in-depth discussion of a breakaway province of a faraway country, though one we've been at war in and been very involved in for quite some time now. But a lot of people would skip over it in my business in order to move on to the latest uh, tweet war against the Trump administration or whatever it may be, right? Talk about how some unfunny leftist female comedian has said something terrible about somebody on on the right. I think Kurdistan matters. I think the Kurdish issue is important, and I think that I can discuss it in a way where you'll at least see that this reflects more than just a decision about what the best strategy is for us in dealing with this issue in Iraq. It reflects who we are as a country, and that's why I think you get some of the most passionate reactions on this issue from veterans, veterans who served in Iraq and who saw firsthand the uh, incredible spirit and tenacity and uh, honor of the Iraqi Kurds, despite all of the atrocities around them, the genocide around them, the genocide visited upon them by Saddam Hussein, the Anfal campaign, the poison gas attack at Halabja, a Kurdish town, uh, dropping poison gas on men, women, and children from Saddam's helicopters. Uh, they have endured through all of this. And despite the breakdown of their country into a jihadist, sadist anarchy for a while, the Kurds kept it together somehow. Um, as a result, of the bravery of Kurdish Peshmerga and the trustworthiness 
uh, of the Kurdish government. Look, I, I'm not naive. Uh, no government is perfect. They're acting in their own self-interest and the interest of their people and uh, the the Barzanis and and the other uh, other clans that run the Kurdish area of Iraq that run Kurdistan uh, are certainly not without sin. But because of the Kurds, I can put it to you in, in these terms, and I think that most of the veterans, I know we get a lot of veterans who listen to the show and a lot of active military too. Because of the Kurds, there are fewer Americans who have come back with grievous wounds from Iraq, and there are fewer Americans who have come back having been killed in action because of Kurdish actions, because of what they did now it's their country and they have an interest in it and all of that. But you can't say the same thing about a lot of Sunni Arab towns in Iraq. You can't say the same thing about fighting alongside you know Sunni. And I'm generalizing here. I know there are, there are excellent Sunni Arab units in Iraq and there are a lot of not so good ones. Circa 2006, 2007, 2008, when the surge was happening. I mean, you ask You ask a veteran who served in Iraq around that time period, would you rather have had Peshmerga having your back or whoever the latest Iraqi army, you know, Sunni and Shia Arab-led Iraqi army battalion rolled in was? You won't get the same answer every time, but from a lot of them, you're going to hear Peshmerga. So as I've said, I think we have a, a, a gentlemanly obligation. We have a debt of honor to the Kurdish people. I think that's well established. We are celebrating, and I think not nearly celebrating enough, the downfall of the Islamic State right now because the Kurds provided the ground force. So also to my my previous thesis about how we have fewer wounded and dead Americans in Iraq because of the Kurds, that's certainly the case as well in the fight against the Islamic State. Uh, So this is... Not just some faraway place that we can put out of mind. Uh, The Islamic State was involved in mass casualty attacks in Europe. Those attacks were planned in Raqqa and the surrounding areas. People were trained and funded in Raqqa and the surrounding areas. And they were coming for us on our own soil, too, here in America. And the Kurds helped stamp them out. They're still doing it. There's more operations left to come, but the Islamic State will, barring some unbelievable reversal of fortune, the Islamic State is on the way out as a state. It'll be an ideology. Jihad is here to stay for a while, but a group that calls itself a state that is the Islamic State that functions as a government that has its own passport-making office, that has its own police and Sharia courts and all that, nope. That's going to be gone in Iraq and Syria soon. And again, thanks to the Kurds. So that's why when I see the latest news out of Kurdistan, it, it really saddens me. The Iraqi government largely pushed into this and, and egged on by IRGC Quds Force and Iran has seized Kirkuk and the surrounding oil fields And Kirkuk, if that's a city that doesn't uh, pop up in the in the memory bank, it's for us just another city in Iraq where we've had, you know, our best and bravest fighting and trying to create stability and turn the lights on and get the sewage flowing and everything else in that in that city. 
But for the Kurds, Kirkuk is Jerusalem. That's what they say that Kirkuk is the Kurdish Jerusalem. It is the most important city to them. Usually you think of Kurdistan and areas like Erbil and uh, cities like Erbil and Sulmania. But for them, Kirkuk is the the uh, holy grail of cities. Uh, and the Iraqi government has taken it back and taken it back by force. And I've seen some reports on exchanges of gunfire between Iraqi troops and some Peshmerga, although they were immediately said, oh, no, it was just a misunderstanding. I don't know. I'm not there. But now the government in Baghdad wants even more. They want the Peshmerga, who, whose name means those who make a pact with death, who even when outgunned by uh, ISIS fighters were willing to stand their ground and stick it out, uh, the Peshmerga are supposed to come under the authority of the central government in Baghdad. And we look at this and we say to ourselves, okay, in the short term, I want to give you the short term version of what's happening there and the long term version, which is a combination of why you and and everyone listening. Well, that's the, the general you why we should all care about this and why there is an opportunity here. And let me start with what the thinking is. And then I'll get to why I think it's wrong and how there should be a focus on something else. Uh, and and I, I think I've, ta- I've talked to you before on the show, going back to the era of Woodrow Wilson, League of Nations, the Kurds, there's 30 million of them, largest stateless people in the world. Uh, I, I just think they also, they deserve a homeland, not just because they say it, not just because they have their own language and they're their own ethnicity. You could say that a lot of They've earned it. They've earned it. And the international community should recognize that, and the U.S. should be taking the lead on this, but I'm getting ahead of myself. In the short term, here's how the Trump administration so far, and I break with them on this. You know, I'm not here to just tell you everything Trump does is great. That's not going to happen. You know that. This is a foreign policy matter that I disagree with the current administration position on, but I think Trump is persuadable on this. I don't think it's all over yet. That's also why I wanted to talk to you about this today on the show. I don't think this is signed, sealed, and delivered against the Kurds, although it has gone badly in recent days, and it's certainly a major setback for them. I think if Trump uh, was presented with the arguments in the right way, if he was presented with the arguments that I'm making here on this show, for example, he might change his mind, and and there would be a way to transition. It wouldn't be an overnight thing, but there would be a way to transition to official Kurdish independence. The short-term thinking on this is we don't want to upset Turkey, because Turkey gets very, uh, very antsy about the notion of Kurdish. Even though, remember, Iraq is a separate country, a different state from Turkey, right? But the Turks have their own Kurdish minority. There's been the PKK insurgency in Turkey for decades. It's killed a lot of Turks, and there's a lot of bad blood over this. Uh, But to that I say, the Turkish government has been much less helpful and trustworthy on the issue of the Islamic State than it should have been, especially early on. The Turkish government needs us more than we need them, and the Turkish government would learn to live with it. They've got a lot of direct investment in northern Iraq already. They have economic ties to Kurdistan as it is. And just because we take a, we say that a part of Iraq can be Kurdish doesn't mean that we would then say, oh yeah, and Turkey too. A huge piece of Turkey. No one's suggesting that. The Turks need to, well, they'd say it's their backyard, but from my perspective, they should back off on this one. But they won't. They won't. But that's why we we don't want to upset Turkey, NATO ally. 
uh, although causing problems for us in the region and with Erdogan has a government in place that is it's just going down the wrong path of Islamism and authoritarianism. It's pretty scary stuff what's happening in Turkey right now. And they're locking up journalists like it's going out of style. And then the other piece of this is the Iraq-Iran issue. And when you look at it, you say, okay, we've we've essentially helped build this government in Iraq out of Baghdad with Haider al-Abadi as the prime minister. And we don't want to go against them. They're our ally. We're, we'd be carving up a part of their country, right? But what are they really going to say to us? Uh, they're, they're going to do what exactly? Tell us that this is... This is impossible. This thinking is is beyond the pale. We've pushed for Albanian independence or ethnic Albanians to have independence in the state of Kosovo. Uh, you look at South Ossetia. You look at South Sudan. New countries are being formed still. The map is not done and over with. And then you have the Iranian hand on this, which is the most uh, ominous and odious of all the players here. That you have IRGC Quds Force in any way, shape, or form attached to these uh, Shia militias that are helping to take uh, control in places like Kirkuk is deeply disturbing. Uh, These are true enemies of the United States. They are enemies of uh, our Western allies. They are enemies of... Uh, Yes, they're enemies of Western civilization. Here's what the Wall Street Journal reports on this issue specifically. Iran, with its own restive Kurdish population, was the most vocal opponent of Kurdistan's independence. The chief of its Quds Force, Major General Qasem Soleimani, who has nurtured close ties with Baghdad and Mr. Barzani's Kurdish opponents, played a key role in Monday's takeover of Kirkuk. This development has prompted Mr. Barzani's movement to adopt a stridently anti-Iranian tone, potentially aligning the conflict with the broader Middle East fracture between foes and allies of Tehran. Iran really doesn't want an independent Kurdistan. I think Iran realizes that were that to happen, you know what, if we were ta- if we were playing chess instead of checkers here, if we were looking, if the government right now was looking steps down the line, And I understand this would be a transition process. It wouldn't be forever, but we could be given a lot more help and backing to the Kurds than we are. We could have air bases in Kurdistan. The Kurds would love it. Oh, man, I'm sure they would. I mean, I haven't talked to them about it, you know, but I'm sure the Kurds would love to have some uh, permanent U.S. military base. I mean, think along the lines of what we have in South Korea and Germany. Have that right up in Kurdistan in an area where the people couldn't be any happier to see us. Friendly, trustworthy. Kurdish food is good. Look, I, I'm open about this. I think the Kurds are great. Uh, Kurdish food is good. Kurdish people are friendly. They like Americans. They'd love Americans if we set up a, an air base or, or two in the north, you know, or whatever bases we want. And what do you think the Iranians would think then? No more of this, oh, this, this, you know, Baghdad. Oh, we've got, you know, we don't want to be puppets of the Americans and we're going to cause problems. No, no, the Kurds would be like, come, come on in. The water's warm. Because the Kurds are real allies. And one more thing. So from a strategic point of view, the relationship that we could have with the Kurds, if they were an autonomous state, uh, could just get stronger and stronger and give us a tremendous amount of leverage in a part of the world where we could really use it. And we would have, you know, we could, if we built an air base there, if there was a Kurdistan, if it was a member of, you know, the, the United Nations and seen by the world as a new state, there's a lot of opportunities there, opportunities for investment as well, all kinds of stuff.
And one more thing. And this is at the broadest level, the broadest narrative of uh, what I view as not just the the counter-jihad and the global counterinsurgency against Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and these other, these other entities, these other nihilistic, vile, destructive death cults that are out there under the banner of, of jihad. The Kurds have proven that a Muslim ethnic group so they're they're ethnic Kurds, but they're uh, Muslim by religion. The Kurds have proven that a an Islamic people can be modern, pro-Western, maintain their identity, and be an ally to the civilized world in the face of the worst jihadist atrocities imaginable. They have been a beacon to the rest of the Muslim world, whether they want to see it or not, about what is possible about what friendship with the West and with the civilized nations of the world could mean. And to miss this opportunity to say, see, they're our friends, they're our allies, they've been with us, they have bled with us, they have bled for us, and now we have an opportunity to pay them back, I just think it's, I will say it, I think it's shameful. And we owe them more than this. We owe them more than this. All right, we've got calls up on the board here in the Freedom Hut, and I also want to thank... Uh, WCBM AM 680 Baltimore for uh, hosting me today. Uh, special thanks to Sean Casey, the programming director, Eric Steinigal, the chief engineer, uh, WCBM AM uh, 680 in Baltimore. Thank you very much for uh, giving me a mobile Freedom Hut for the day. Much, much ap- appreciated. Uh, let's get into all of the latest here. We have... Uh, on the board here, we have Dr. Bob uh, listening in on the uh, iHeart app from uh, Pen- in Pennsylvania. What's going on, Dr. Bob? Greetings. Uh, hey, page, all, paging the doctor. What's up? If I use the speaker, no, you, you got to cut. No speakerphone, sir. You got to come right up to this because everyone wants to hear you, Dr. Bob. Okay, so no speakerphone. There we go. Look at oh, crystal right clear, man. It's like you're hanging out here with me and everybody else. All right, here's the story. First of all, we have to transform everything that you just said into action. Now, I've written, even though I'm Jewish, I'm not Kurdish, I've written a half dozen articles over the past decade on this issue. And I visited Congress on Monday three weeks ago when they had the hearing on the Cassidy bill and dropped off a couple of articles along those lines to try to motivate people to have a conference in Washington they would pull together all of the Kurdish lobbying groups. There are four of them. And a guy named Sherko Abbas, who has been educating me on this, who is the president of the Kurdistan National Assembly of Syria, can put this together. And I'd like to ask you if we can recruit your support to help coordinate pulling this together as soon as possible. Because we have to help the Donald understand that being neutral, as you pointed out yesterday on Fox News, is actually supporting Iran via Baghdad. You think we can do this? Uh, I, don't, I don't know the specifics of what you're, you're trying for here, Dr. Bob, but if, if, it, if there's a way that I can be helpful in getting the administration to understand this Kurdish issue from a perspective that it sounds like you and I share, that that's something I would certainly be interested in. Well, let me just suggest that Barzani would come over for a conference. And the key difference between this and a conference that was held in June 
is it would not just be one of the Kurdish groups, it would be all of them. And there, we've, we've written up in the past the various factions that have been backed by various groups. But the key thing is we have to push for independence. We have to push for the fact that 100 years ago, the Treaty of Severus promised that this was going to occur, and then it was unfortunately supplanted. And therefore, this is something that for the 30-plus million Kurds is something that should have been accomplished not just yesterday but a year ago, if not a century ago, if not 4,000 years ago when they first started working together as an ethnic group. All right, Dr. Bob, so, do me a favor. Um, send me question. send me all this. Send me all this. On, you have my Facebook, right? Send me the message there. I'll get it. And uh, you and I can we, we can start a dialogue about this via email and, and see where we go, all right? I'm thrilled to hear from you. Thank you okay. very much. All right, Dr. Bob. Thank you, sir. So I've got two different stories that I want to get to now, and I'm, I'm not sure how much time I'm going to spend on either, so we'll see. I, I think I will skip over that uh, <laughs> I saw on Fox that uh, Bigfoot was reportedly sighted in Northern California and pictures have gone viral. Oh, man. You know, there's just something... It's just fun to read. You know, it's nonsense, but it's fun to read a Bigfoot story every now and again. Bigfoot, Loch Ness, Chupacabra. There's all kinds of stuff out there. Maybe I can get into some of that on uh, around Halloween. You know, take take a, an, a fun view of... The lore, the mythology around all this stuff. I think mythology is a mythology is just stories. As long as you realize it's not real, stories can be great. Uh, so anyway, I this Bigfoot photo that was pretty funny. That's out there right now. I don't think I don't I don't have much to add on that. I'm not a I'm not a uh, Sasquatch uh, expert, um, and uh, I nor I never understood. So I guess the abominable snowman. Is that like in the Himalayas versus the Sasquatch? And Sasquatch is up in the Pacific Northwest. And I've never really... Un- and Bigfoot is the same as Sasquatch. So that's about as much as I know. All right, you're like, Buck, stop talking about the fake things. Yeah, so I've got... Put that aside. I just saw that story and it made me smile for a second. That's all. Uh, hard turn now. Uh, I want to get into the the Hillary corruption stuff that broke today, and I think, uh, was it Solomon and, and my friend Sarah Carter? Sarah, by the way, is just the greatest. I used to work with her a lot at, at The Blaze, and it, it's amazing that a, a journalist can be so effective and fierce in her profession and such an incredibly uh, kind, warm, and, and uh, trustworthy and, and patriotic human being, so... Uh, Sarah, I, I can't say enough nice things about Sarah Carter. And, you know, we've had her on the show many times before, but I've been working with Sarah for years. I, I'm not sure if this was her. I think it is her piece. It's Solomon as well. Uh, she's been working with John Solomon, a lot of the uh, Hillary email stuff and also on the Russia gate. Uh, so but there's more Hillary corruption about Russia. And I'll get to that. So put, put a pin in that for a second. Uh, but we will talk about it. I think it's just giving us more of. It's more detail that is supporting what we already know as conc- as conclusions about all this. But put a hold on that for a second, because I also just want to note that uh, there is not a whole lot of new information. Right, the, the two stories I wanted to get to now, obviously Russia, Hillary. We'll get into that in a second. But first, on the Las Vegas mass shooting that happened, here we are now. 
Uh, uh, we've had many days passed since that incident. And we don't really have much more in terms of information. I spoke to you yesterday about how the timeline was fixed and, and how it seems like a Jesus, a Jesus Campos was uh, maybe caught up in, in the possibility of his employer being sued. He has completely uh, disappeared. I mean, it's it's known that he's... Oh, it's uh, Allison Spann is the one with the piece. Pardon me. Well, Sarah still... All those things I said about Sarah Carter still stand. So <laughs> Sarah Carter is still wonderful. Uh, but uh, it's Allison Spann with the with the piece on uh, Russia. FBI uncovered... Yeah, here, John Solomon and Allison Spann. So it was John Solomon and Allison Spann instead of John Solomon and Sarah Carter. Uh, I'm sure Allison Spann's great too. I just don't know her. So, but back to uh, Las Vegas. Thank you, a- producer Amy, for not letting me uh, continue to cite the wrong person as the author of that piece that's why i've got you know amy uh making sure that i i stay on the on the factual path here uh <laughs> although she left me alone with the sasquatch thing because we all know sasquatch is just about fun so uh, we don't have we don't have any more back to the serious topic of of the investigation here we don't have anything on uh on the shooter really we don't have any additional information which is kind of incredible at this point not much more in the way of motive and this disappearance and he's not disappeared like no one knows where he is, but dropping off the radar of the security guard. There's just something up. I, I'm, I don't have conspiracies for you. I don't I don't buy into that stuff. One of the reasons why I never think that conspiracies are uh, intellectually sound practice is because having spent time in some places where there's a lot of conspiracy theories, CIA, CFR. You know, go down the go down the list of some of these organizations. Uh, it, it's often what people think might be some grandiose plot. It's much more likely to just be incompetence, indifference, ineptitude. So it'd be amazing if there was like all these people coming together from all over the world, and there's like this this group of people that are like at the top, you know, and and they're 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 the ones giving the orders. I mean, they're the ones saying like this is how it's gonna. That that gets people riled up, and they. But no, no. Usually, conspiracies are uh, just much more complicated. Are much more complicated than they have to be, and that's because they're not accurate. Right? That's why conspiracies become so ornate. But they're interesting, and so they draw attention from people. I I don't have any conspiracy to offer up here about what's going on with Las Vegas because nothing makes sense to me. But I also don't have answers for you. I don't have answers about the motive of of the shooter. I don't have answers about uh, how the, you know, the timeline, I think we've worked that out a little bit, but still the motive here, we don't have it. And I was saying to you the first week of the shooting, I just want to note this. I was saying the first week that that shooting had happened that I'm not sure we're ever going to find out based on the the almost uh, unfathomable precision and planning and the, the meticulous nature of, what that guy Paddock did to engage in mass murder, it just doesn't line up with what we see in these cases in the past. And if you're going to, if there was a political motive, if you do something for a political motive, you want people to know. And if you're that politicized, you tend to leave a trail of your politics. And we don't, we still just don't have it. And I know there are a lot of folks who are out there, oh, you know, my law enforcement sources say, you know, it's just a matter of hours before the equivalent of the, you know, the, the handwritten note that explains it all is revealed. They've got it. You know, people say stuff like that, whether they're saying it in good faith or they just want to be on, on TV or on radio and have something to say, I, I can't tell you. 
But I was telling you right away, I, I don't think that this is, I don't see how we get to a clear answer here, because if there was a clear answer, we would probably know. And right now, that's looking pretty, pretty accurate. Uh, and if it changes, I'll, I'll update you as soon as I can. But I'm still sitting around waiting. I mean, I'm not a part of this world anymore on the investigative or analytic side. Uh, I'm still waiting to hear something about Las Vegas on the motive and about this shooter that all that brings it all together. So it it makes sense. I just I'm not there yet. Um, and we're not there yet. No, no one knows. I mean, no one no one knows unless law enforcement's holding stuff back. But there's no criminal trial here that we know of. Right? I mean, the shooter's dead. So why would law enforcement be holding out on us? That makes no sense either. So there's just some there's some question marks that are are lingering. Um, and I, I wanted to note that. Now, I told you we'd talk about Hillary and uh, the corruption and, and all the Ru- and the Russia stuff. Why don't I take this opportunity to uh, we can reset, get back into neutral here and go into a quick break so we can all take a little breather. Hear from some of our wonderful sponsors. We come back. We'll dive into this reporting on Hillary. Here's the here's the short version of it. The FBI uncovered uh, Russian bribery and meddling and all kinds of stuff going on uh, before the Obama administration approved the controversial uranium deal with Moscow. By the way, who was the Secretary of State during all that? Oh, that's right. Hillary. She was the Secretary of State. But what happened was... Oh, we'll find out what happened, Hillary. No, you won't. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. We're going to look into what happened with Hillary here. All right. I promised you Hillary time. You did. You promised. I promised you Hillary time. And so that now we're going to get, you know, and now we're going to get into it. I really, I really am now just, just taking this into like a, like a parrot sound, but it's really, if you really listen closely, it sounds like Hillary. Don't, don't think that I'm just making a parody with a parrot. I'll show myself out. Uh, all right. FBI uncovered Russian bribery plot before Obama administration approved controversial nuclear deal with Moscow. It's on the hill.com. 78,000 shares and counting on uh, social media. So some people definitely uh, read this one. And let me give you some of the some of the broad strokes. There's a lot of detail here and it's good to have the details out there. It's good reporting. Uh, from it's great reporting from John Solomon and Allison Spann, but uh, you just need to know the broad strokes to understand why this matters so much. But let me get walk you through this a little bit. Quote, before the Obama administration approved a controversial deal in 2010, giving Moscow control of a large swath of American uranium, the FBI had gathered substantial evidence that Russian nuclear industry officials were engaged in bribery, kickbacks, extortion, and money laundering designed to grow Vladimir Putin's atomic energy business inside the United States. Federal agents used a confidential U.S. witness working inside the Russian nuclear industry to gather extensive financial records, make secret recordings, and intercept emails as early as 2009 that showed Moscow had compromised an American uranium trucking firm with bribes and kickbacks in violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, Practices Act, according to the FBI and court documents. Uh, and it's just there's a lot more uh, detail here, but let me just skip to some of the parts you're going to need to know. Rather than bring immediate charges in 2010, the DOJ continued investigating the matter for nearly four years. 
essentially leaving the American public and Congress in the dark about nuclear Russian nuclear corruption on U.S. soil during a period when the Obama administration made two major decisions benefiting Putin's commercial nuclear ambitions. Um, and, that, and then you get into the Clinton aspect of all this stuff here in just a second. But first, okay, so there's this big investigation going on. FBI is looking into it. Court documents can be consulted to give further uh, further proof of all this, that the Russians are playing dirty in the uranium sector, and the government knows about this, but the government doesn't do anything for four years. Meanwhile, now we get into some other stuff here. Right? So the Obama administration has decided, no, no, we're not going to we're not going to go forward with these prosecutions. We're not going to raise the alarm. Now, keep in mind, what have we heard about all oh, Russia corruption and, and meddling in the election? Oh, there should have been more done. There should have been more done. What about before? Right. This is, Russian meddling and all of our stuff is not new online, in person, old school, new school, up, down and all around the place. The Russians are meddling. Right. They're doing whatever they can. Not new. Going back to the KGB era, going back to uh, uh, Compromazat and Provocatia, Provocatia and all these other things that the KGB, you know, provocations and compromising and all the things that KGB used to do. Maskarovka, you know, I'd like to fake a Russian accent when I say these words. And then you get Hillary in on all this and you start to wonder, hmm, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that while this is all going on and this was written about in uh, in Clinton Cash. But there's all this shady Russian business happening. And then you find out that, you know, Hillary and the Clinton Foundation, there's all this money that's coming into them, too. And you just have to wonder, given the sensitivity that should have been raised at the time about Russia in our uranium sector, that Hillary, as secretary of state, allowed the Russians to purchase this large stake in in an American uranium company, you would think, you would think might get a little more attention, raise some alarms. No, it had to be written about by Peter Schweitzer for anyone to even notice this, right? Quote, uh, the Obama administration's decision to approve Rosatom's purchase of Uranium One, Uranium One is a U.S. company, has been a source of political controversy since 2015. That's when conservative author Peter Schweitzer and the New York Times documented how Bill Clinton collected hundreds of thousands of dollars in Russian speaking fees, and his charitable foundation collected millions in donations from parties interested in the deal while Hillary Clinton presided on the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. The Obama administration and the Clintons defended their actions at the time, insisting there was no evidence that any Russians or donors engaged in wrongdoing, and there was no national security reason for any member of the committee to oppose the Iranian One deal. But FBI, Energy Department, and court documents reviewed by the Hill show the FBI, in fact, had gathered substantial evidence well before the committee's decision that Vadim Merkurin, the main Russian overseeing Putin's nuclear expansion inside the United States, was engaged in wrongdoing starting in 2009. Okay, so like I said, there's a lot, I know there's a lot of detail, a lot of names, and guys named like, you know, what's this guy, Vladimir and Vadim and, you know, this and that and... You know, gosh, I've got to stop. My Russian keeps keeps floating into my Transylvanian because, you know, we got Dracula coming up in a few weeks. Uh, 
But here's what here's what you this is already known, but it just gives you more details about this. And the Obama administration, the DOJ and the Obama administration sat on this, didn't want to do much about it. And it just goes to show that they made a political decision about Russian meddling during the election. And the political decision was, look, Hillary's going to win anyway. You know, this is not a big deal. Who cares? And that's the truth. It's not a big deal. Who cares? Or if you want to look into it, fine. But, you know, look into the same way you look into like baseball and steroids or something. Right. I mean, Congress gets all sanctimonious and nobody really cares. Uh, But no, no. Now they tell us that this is a national security threat. Now they tell us that the Russians are like lurking in every corner and under every bed. And we've got to be terrified of what Russia is going to do next. And the Russians aren't finished with us. And the Russians are. Yeah, we have there are opposition Governments around the world, to be sure. There are enemy governments, enemy regimes around the world. But to overstate the threat from Russia for purely political reasons, right, as an excuse for Hillary's loss to Donald Trump, it's just pathetic. But they're not going to stop. And when you look at how blatant the corruption was with the Clinton Foundation and Hillary and, and the conflicts of interest there, this is why the punches that the media try to land on this administration just don't work. This is why they keep coming. They keep coming to the American people and saying, oh, he's gone too far now. Oh, this latest thing he said. Now it's all over for Trump. And it's not because we're paying attention. We see. And I didn't even get I didn't even get to talk about how the Department of Justice or rather James Comey, head of the FBI, was writing. And this was on uh, this was courtesy of Fox News yesterday was writing memos to show before Hillary was even interviewed that the email thing was going nowhere. That's, yeah, that's right. A different justice system for the Clintons. At least they thought that's what they had. Not with Trump in office, though. I think things have changed. Because they've really become just obstructionists. They have no good policies. And frankly, they're not good politicians, but they're very good obstructionists. And that's what they do well, obstruct. Uh, The number of nominees that I have approved by the Democrats are about half of what President Obama had. And when you look at that, and you look at judicial appointments, look how slow that's going. I'll have 145, ultimately, which is a tremendous number. We'll have 17 Court of Appeals appointments, but uh, they're not getting approved. They're being slow-walked by uh, Schumer and the group of Democrats that uh, really, it's it's really disgraceful. Even people that they know they're going to approve, they take it right out to the end. They use every single minute. And I think it's a very disgraceful situation. Well, there you have President Trump, who is not mincing words when it comes to the Democrats, calling them obstructionists, particularly on the issue of the judiciary, which a lot of folks on the left know is one of the best places. Or it probably is the single best option for the hashtag resistance. But Trump was also talking earlier today about how he's got a health care bill that he likes, or at least he's saying he likes it as of now, that would be bipartisan in nature. So so what is going on here? He was buddy-buddy with McConnell earlier in the week. Now he's pushing for bipartisan health care reform. What is really happening? To help us wade through some of this, we have Sarah Westwood on the line. She is the Washington Examiner's White House correspondent. Sarah, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay, Sarah, let's let's start with the basics here. What is going on? One moment Trump's saying the Democrats are obstructionists. The next it feels like he's telling us 
that Chuck and Nancy have some good ideas for shoring up the health care exchanges. Well, clearly President Trump is trying to lay some defensive groundwork for his decision to withhold those cost-sharing reduction payments, which some analysts believe were helping to prop up the Obamacare exchanges. And so by withholding those and then also by doing his executive order that he did last week, which um, opened up the possibility of selling insurance plans over state lines, President Trump is taking some actions that are undermining the integrity of the Obamacare system. It was already weak, and this is only going to weaken it. So President Trump has suggested that Republicans would be open to working with Democrats, but that's clearly not a viable possibility. Democrats and Republicans are so far apart on health care. Uh, Democrats are pursuing, you know, in some cases, a single-payer system, while Republicans are pursuing something that block grants Medicaid. So they couldn't be further apart on health care, and really this is a tool that both sides use sometimes to call for a bipartisan solution. It's an effort to highlight the other side's unwillingness to work together. You have Senator uh, Senator Chuck Schumer saying that the latest solution to shore up the exchanges is a, is a pretty good idea. You got Senator Patty Murray saying Democrats, Republicans working together that's a that's a good thing. Something we should all feel like uh, is to be applauded. And yet, I'm just wondering: is this like when a little bit earlier uh, we had Trump? What was it? A few weeks ago. Trump saying that there was a deal or or there was reporting, at least, of a deal on immigration with Chuck and Nancy. And now we're told that's falling apart. Do you think that there is a chance that Trump is going to just change his mind on this? It's not really a bipartisan reform on health care. It's just a a quick fix or a two year fix. Uh, There's always a possibility that President Trump will change his mind on anything. And certainly with immigration, we saw that's exactly what happened in his conversation with the Democratic congressional leaders. He seemed to indicate that the wall wasn't going to be part of what he pushed for in a, any package that extended protections to the Dreamers to, to legislate the DACA order that he's rescinding next year. But uh, Chuck and Nancy came out ahead of the White House announcing that the President Trump wasn't going to pursue the wall in a way that made it look like they'd gotten some kind of concession. The White House might have made a mistake by letting Chuck and Nancy set the tone for what the agreement was going to look like. And so what you saw was President Trump sort of pull back a little bit from that and say, uh, well, these are all of the border security and interior security measures that we're going to push for as part of the deal. Those included like E-Verify, more ICE employees and resources. And that put Democrats back on defense. They then felt the need to backtrack from the deal. So this is a lot of gamesmanship, a lot of signaling to supporters about who's going to fight for what. At the end of the day, though, uh, these these deals are all within the reach of Congress. They just have to be willing to let the other side maybe win a symbolic victory now and then. We're speaking to Sarah Westwood, who is the Washington Examiner's White House correspondent. Uh, speaking of the White House, Sarah, what can you tell us about, as much as anyone can know, what can you tell us about the relationship between Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and President Donald Trump? It seems like it's been on a bit of a roller coaster lately. It certainly has, but what we're hearing from our sources is that it was President Trump 
the White House who initiated that meeting, not the Senate Majority Leader. There are some who think it's a recognition on the part of Trump that he will need Senate Republicans to pass his legislative agenda items, particularly tax form, and that antagonizing McConnell is not going to be the way to get there. There are some who think that President Trump is just laying the groundwork to be able to say a little bit down the line that he did everything he could, that he, look, I did try to make nice with McConnell and look where it got us, that he's sort of buying himself that credibility down the line. Uh, It was just sort of remarkable to see President Trump go from trading barbs with McConnell on Twitter to shaking his hand and clapping his back in front of reporters in the Rose Garden yesterday. And the relationship between the president and Secretary of State Tillerson, which I'm seeing there's additional reporting today to say that uh, still some some tension there, or is that not really verified based on what you're hearing from your sources? Well, from what we're hearing, the, the tension has been there for a long time, not necessarily because of either side doing anything wrong, but because Tillerson and Trump just may not be a good fit professionally, personally, that they have totally different styles totally different approaches to the job that President Trump maybe thought he was going to be uh, hiring a contemporary, someone that he could interact with in a friendly way because Rex Tillerson came from the corporate world, but Tillerson was actually much more cautious and careful uh, than President Trump might have thought. And so they don't necessarily get along that well on a personal level, and that's really colored their professional relationship as well. Um, I, you know, I, I, have no idea whether Tillerson actually called President Trump a moron, but those stories are just a symptom of the fact that their working relationship has been complicated over the past few months. And I saw some reporting about Senator Tom Cotton. Is that is that uh, confirmed yet, or is that just in the rumor mill still? Well, it's still in the rumor mill, but it's certainly believable because President Trump clearly likes Senator Tom Cotton and trusts his counsel. Remember that just days before President Trump gave that big speech about his new approach to the Iran nuclear deal, he had Cotton into the White House for a one-on-one meeting, that the White House has been in contact with Cotton, uh, relying on his advice as they proceeded with this new Iran policy. So Cotton is someone President Trump clearly trusts and likes, has praised in the past, so it wouldn't be surprising then that he would consider placing Cotton somewhere in the administration should a vacancy open up. Is there going to be some action from this Republican uh, Congress on legislation by the end of the year, you think? Or is this just going to be a conversation, whether it's about taxes, health care, that just keeps getting pushed out? Well, it's the timeline that the White House is pursuing for tax reform in particular is really ambitious. It, initially, Gary Cohn had said they wanted to see tax reform get through the House by October, the Senate by November. That's just not looking likely. There's only two weeks left in October, and Republicans are still haggling over the broad strokes of tax reform and whether it should add to the deficits or not. Just big conceptual questions, let alone hammering out the nitty-gritty of what kind of language would pass the House by the end of the month. So it's a really ambitious timeline and the, the more it drags on, there's only a couple dozen legislative working days left on the calendar, the more unlikely it looks that we'll see it this year. All right. Sarah Westwood, White House correspondent for The Washington Examiner. Sarah, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Just a note about the obstructionism point and the judiciary and what's going on there with Trump. I'm sure it is true that the Democrats are doing absolutely everything in their power to try and make it 
just uh, make it as difficult as possible, as prolonged as possible to get uh, Trump's nominees to the bench. Uh, this is one of the places where I think he's shown the, uh, the the greatest support from conservatives, or he's getting the most support from conservatives, his on putting people, uh, Gorsuch, the most visible manifestation of this, the Supreme Court, but the federal bench as well, uh, and, and uh, appellate courts. The Obama administration's legacy is largely a judicial one. Just keep that in mind. I don't just mean the corruption within the DOJ because of all the leftist bureaucrats that clearly infiltrated it, but I mean the actual judiciary, like the the bench, judges. Uh, We're talking about a large number of the current, uh, currently in place federal judges were appointed by Obama. And remember that it was uh, Harry Reid who got rid of the filibuster for lower level, meaning non-Supreme Court federal judges. And that meant that they could just pack them with devoted leftists. And they did. I think I should probably check my statistic. But usually when I say this, I'm right. I'm just being cautious. If I'm wrong, I'll correct it. I think almost 30 percent in the let's say approximately 30 percent of the uh, federal bench right now is comprised of Obama appointees. Think about that. 30 percent ish, 30 percent ish. Uh, a lot of judges are far left wing Obama picks. And that's something that stays with us unless we get rid of some of those judges. And, and I think that you're seeing the need for that with what's going on with this judge out in, in Hawaii. I, I think that people need to really take seriously the removal of office, uh, removal from office of judges who are abusing their power. Why don't we talk about that? Why don't I get into why I'm thinking about the judiciary so much today? You got this judge out in Hawaii who is uh, stopping Trump's third iteration of the so-called travel ban, or as I like to put it, the temporary restriction or temporary enhancement on travel security. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Freedom Hunt Baltimore uh, edition today. Excited to be hanging out here. Like I said, my, my first time. So Baltimore is a, is, a, is, a, is a nice town. I like it here. You know, some good restaurants. There's some stuff to do. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Uh, but I wanted to get into a little bit of the continued fallout over the uh, Harvey Weinstein situation. Drudge has a big uh, headline, Harvey Wood cracking, and there's just more and more of this uh, stuff coming out. And, you know, I, I think that it, it's, it's going to be coming out for quite some time because, and this hasn't been spoken about by that many people, I think, yet, and that's that there's something about the entertainment industry that is particularly and has been uh, particularly uh, open to this kind of exploitation for a long time. And it's because you have individuals who are uh, largely, in terms of their careers, left at the whim of completely, well, they're left to completely subjective decision-making. There's not much that you can do or say when you don't get the part in a movie. It's just people in power deciding whether you are a success or not. And that means that the opportunity 
for abuse of power, and this is separate from the specifics of all the sexual assault allegations that are out there, but I just mean as a general concept, Hollywood and the media and the entertainment industry are uh, are a profession where the power imbalance is tremendous between those who have it and those who do not. And the difference is stark. You know, let, let me kind of and this is also true, I should note, in the in the news industry, particularly on the TV news side. And you've also seen plenty of problems coming from the TV news industry with regard to harassment recently. But uh, if you are, let's say, a if you're a, a lawyer, if you are working in a, in a small business uh, and you have a role and that's what you do. Uh, you have established something on your resume. You know that you have a company that probably there's some either an HR department or at least some basic HR uh, policies that are in place. There's some structure for what's going on. And there are other people and there's transparent. I mean, look, I'm speaking in generalities here, but there's other people around you and there's some sense of expectations for conduct in the workplace. Now, that sexual harassment happens. But the laws on the books that have been on the books for a long time mean that at a company, at a corporation uh, that is, you know, making money, that is profitable, the opportunities to uh, harass people always come with the possibility of a major uh, settlement of some kind, right? That you can be sued, that there can be uh, redress for people who are harassed, who are sexually harassed in your standard American court. Now, that's not to say that harassment doesn't exist. I know that the Me Too hashtag, which is about people that have been sexually assaulted or harassed, has been mega trending on Twitter. But I'm just trying to point out that the entertainment industry specifically is going to be and has been a subject to people abusing their power in this way because there really isn't much of a of a structure in place for a lot of how this works. There really isn't a an established best practices. There's no corporate culture in Hollywood. Well, I guess you could argue the corporate culture is the casting couch mentality. It is people doing anything to get ahead. But it's it's worse in Hollywood than it would be. In, and then I believe it's worse in Hollywood than it is in, in almost any other industry, certainly in any other large industry. And. Hollywood has been uniquely susceptible to abusive power and harassment for a long time. What I think has caused the explosion of allegations here, or or rather the, the outrage in response to the explosion of allegations, is that this stuff was so egregious and was suppressed for so long. I believe that we all figured that there was that there was behavior similar to this going on in Hollywood and that most people just uh, ignored it. They've got their own things to think about and they didn't, you know what I mean, similar to, I mean, sexual harassment, comments to women, uh, quid pro quo for uh, movie roles, that, that casting couch behavior. I think people have recognized for a long time that that was going on, but we just didn't know the specifics of it. Now that we know the specifics and know that it's not only an issue of what would be civil litigation, right? A, a, a suit that could go to court that's monetary damages, but criminal allegations 
that's where the suppression of this goes well beyond just, well, you know, there was a corporate culture or there wasn't a corporate culture in Hollywood. There was a, a culture of the powerful preying on the powerless. And, you know, th- this is now into what feels like a criminal conspiracy. And you're starting to see the beginnings of co-conspirators, people talking about co-conspirators with Weinstein. It's gone beyond just enablers because this guy was a predator. This was somebody who was dangerous to women and preying upon them in criminal ways, at least allegedly, right? Nothing, nothing has been proven yet in a court of law. This is why we say allegedly. It's a formality, but one that is in place. Uh, but the allegations of a criminal nature, he denies. Of a civil suit nature, he accepts, and that's why he's gone to the rehab facility. But This has gotten worse with each passing day. I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet. And you're going to see that there's been a transition from this was a civil suit kind of complaint originally to, no, this is now possible criminal charges. And now I'm wondering if there's going to be more fallout for those around Harvey Weinstein for being co-conspirators in this, for being enablers in this. That's where I think this may be going next. Well, everybody, it's uh, been fun. I'm actually doing, as I said, the the show today from Baltimore, uh, which is my first time in Baltimore. I've done something of a of a coastal uh, tour in the last few days. I went back to my old stomping ground in Washington, D.C., which I I will tell you, I know it's a swamp, but it is in its own way a pretty charming and alluring swamp the food in dc has gotten really good i moved there in 2005 and i think dc has every year gotten better Uh, so i I know that all things political and inside the beltway we see as being uh, problematic and there's and that's all true right the the wealthiest or uh, three of the 10 or four of the 10 might even be six of the 10 i forget now several of the wealthiest counties in the country are the ones immediately ringing dc that shouldn't be the case it should not be feeding from the trough of the federal government but that's what happens but if you're just talking about a place to visit i gotta say dc's pretty great i was in georgetown for a little bit i met my little brother who just happened to randomly be in town on on business and we we didn't even realize we're going to be in town the same time uh, until i told him i was going to be on fox and had a lot of fun yesterday on the brett bear panel but we met up afterwards at one of our old haunts Uh, i was a young cia officer in dc living in georgetown and my little brother was a student at georgetown university so even when i was uh, outside of New York City, my hometown, I had family nearby. We used to hang out all the time, and it was it was great. And it was nice to be back in town and, and to spend some time uh, in my old my old stomping ground and also with uh, a little bro who's a, just the greatest guy anybody could, could ever imagine. So I um, wanted to also uh, take some time today to get into the latest on Team Buck Speaks because this has become one of my one of my favorite parts of of the show actually it's a lot of fun to be able to read off to all of you what you're saying especially because we have such a large uh, podcast audience and also i know some of you listen to the show 
either on the iHeartRadio app or uh, you listen on a little bit of, of a delay on your station. So for those of you who can't call in live, which is, it's always great to have you with the live call-ins, but for those of you who can't call in live, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. The team and I, Tyrone, Amy, uh, and me, we are going through those messages and we're uh, taking all of your thoughts and uh, advice into account, your criticism as well. Uh, and it's a great way to have real connectivity with all of you listening. So however you listen to the show, and if you're just a little shy about calling in, uh, although you couldn't have anyone better than uh, than producer Amy as the first person you're going to talk to, she, she'll make you feel right at home when you call in. But if you would rather write or if you want to share a link or there's a story that you think should uh, be brought to the attention of the Freedom Hut so that we can get involved in a discussion here or I can talk to my sources and try to dig up more information on it, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. So with that, uh, we have Mark writing in, doing great as usual on Brett Bear, uh, killer hair bro, always looking good, LOL. And then he writes, dang, you're skinny now too. What's the secret? Looking younger and younger. Always love your comments. You need to have your own show on FNC. I think I'll tell them seriously. Well, Mark, you are far too nice. Thank you very much. Hopefully I was having a good hair day yesterday on the Brett Bear panel. And in terms of uh, dropping some LBs, one is, you know, I I can't be, if if I'm going to be a few years older than Miss Molly, I I can't be losing a step to be in, uh, dad bod just yet, right? I've I've got to actually be a dad before I let the dad bod fully fully uh, get embraced. And uh, also, I just find the the enemies are. And I'm not saying I don't I don't enjoy both, but the enemies are sugar and alcohol, everything else, and sugar meaning also refined carbohydrates that your body breaks down quickly, and in your blood and sh- in, in your blood sugar reflects. Uh, it's as though you were, you know, a, a cupcake and a or you know a piece of chocolate and a bagel for all intents and purposes. You should think of them in kind of the same way. So, although I think dark chocolate's fantastic, as you know, but yeah, sugar and chocolate. I mean, whoops, no, chocolate's phenomenal. Sugar and alcohol are the enemy. If that's something that you want to make some changes to, uh, David writes in, "Hey, Buck, just listen to the Friday podcast." I will not give you a hard time about the pearl-handled revolver remark because you corrected yourself. But on the subject of Friday, thank you, I'm glad. I got so many. I corrected it on air, and still people were writing in like, how could you? I'm like, I'm sorry. I know it wasn't, it was ivory. It wasn't pearl on Patton's revolver uh, or revolvers. Oh, gosh, did I make another mistake? Apologies. But on the subject of Friday the 13th, my wife and I, uh, met on Friday the 13th, and we were married on on February 13th and have been married for almost 30 years. Superstition be damned. Shields high. Shout out to uh, Miss Molly. Uh, welcome home, Chica. And by the way, my wife's name is Maria, and she's a huge fan too. Well, David and Maria, uh, congrats on your marital bliss, and thank you very much for writing into the show. Uh, Shields high. Michael, uh, Michael writes in, uh, hey, Buck, Shields High from Texas. I was podcasting Friday's show. Just had to give a big thumbs up to the gratuitous greenskeeper Carl talking about all the doctors offering their advice. Literally made me LOL. Thanks for the laugh. Shields High, buddy. Well, Michael, glad that it made you LOL. That's that's what we aim for sometimes here. It can't be all serious stuff all the time. Uh, 
just this is from Ellen. Just listen, a lot of just listen to Friday podcast here today. I guess people are, are delayed over the weekend and they write in on Monday. Uh, just listen to Friday podcast. Great show as usual. I'm with you on The Exorcist. I lived in D.C. for years and always avoided that street when in Georgetown. Well, uh, Ellen, I, I lived right down from that street, and I, I walked past it every single day. I mean, I drove past it, walked past it every day. It gives you a sense of where I lived in uh, Georgetown when I was down there. But that is, to me, still the scariest movie ever made. Uh, I'm an adult. I am not afraid of the dark. I have been in plenty of scary places around the world. I do not enjoy watching The Exorcist. It will not be on my list of movies for this Halloween. Although, The Real Dracula, that's coming up on the Buck Sexton radio show in uh, in a few weeks. Uh, also known as Buck Sexton with America Now. Uh, so we have, uh, oh, whoops, sorry, more people writing, lots more people writing in about the pearl handled sorry they were they were not pearl handled i i am not worthy i am not worthy they were not pearl handled they were ivory handled that patent carried we have established that all right david writes in with something serious here hey buck here's the picture of the vegas shooter's sweet door i mentioned earlier it appears to be off the hinges and laying sideways i can count maybe 10 bullet holes you know as well as I do that the door would have been blown to hell if 200 rounds were put through it at short range by an AR-15 on, quote, full automatic. That hallway would have looked like a sawmill. It sucks. I even have to think about it, but it doesn't make sense on any level. And then a security guard disappears after the meeting with MGM management. Anyway, looking forward to the Dracula episode. There we go. Perfect timing, David. Uh, the history deep dives are great, and you produce a well-balanced show. We can only talk politics so much. Well, David, let me first say thank you for that. I do like to mix it up and bring a lot of information to the show because, look, I know that there's so much commentary out there. And by the time I'm on air, a lot of you will have heard about the main news stories and maybe even some commentary in the main news stories. So that's one of the reasons why I like to go deep on the national security side, bring a little expertise to things, and also why I mix it up and why you have... Uh, some history deep dives, some more philosophical segments, some that are just about life. Uh, and coming up, the, the real Dracula, for those who don't know the story, I think you'll really enjoy that. That will be uh, as close to Halloween. i got to see what day of the week Halloween is. Uh, but the real Dracula is always, uh, that's a crowd pleaser. Because I'm, I'm amazed to this day that no one has really made a movie about the guy that Dracula, the character, was based on. I mean, it was a, a historical character. Uh, as the cross versus crescent theme continues through this show in terms of our history deep dives, uh, Vlad Dracul, who is the basis for Dracula, w- was raised in the Ottoman court. He was the equivalent in his day of like a special forces guy. Uh, he had a non-traditional, he fought in non-traditional ways. He was uh, schooled in the Ottoman arts of warfare and then fought for the Christians against the Ottomans. He was also a bloodthirsty uh, maniac, but we'll get into all of that. We will get into all of that. Uh, it's a fascinating historical piece that I think doesn't get nearly enough attention. And now that I've talked it up so much, we will certainly have to spend some time on the show doing it. Um, Ch- uh, Chesson writes in with a, a photo of his chuck roast, which I can tell you all looks delicious. So, Chesson, I hope you enjoyed that. I can't really describe it well enough to do it justice on radio, but I'm sure it was absolutely uh, fantastic. 
And let's see who else. I'm trying to make my... There's so many. And those of you writing in, just so you know, even if I don't get to it on air, um, if I don't get to it on air, don't think that I'm not reading it and that you're you're not being heard in the sense that we're not uh, getting to your messages. It just means that we run out of time. And in fact, I got to call it there because it is uh, time for us to close up shop here in the Freedom Hut. Thank you, as always. Uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to send me those messages. I'm going to be spending the night tonight in Baltimore, which is a, a lovely, lovely place. I want to thank WC, WCBM for hosting me. Uh, very generous of them to allow me to come and use their wonderful radio studio and get a chance to uh, enjoy Baltimore and its surroundings and be close to the folks down here. So a big thank you to WCBM. WCBM. 